Hey, it's great to see us. So thankful for you. So I heard a story recently, and it just resonated with me being a preacher and a pastor. So this pastor was going on a bike ride through his neighborhood. He had a new bike, and he liked to bike. So he was biking through his neighborhood. He sees this little boy pushing a lawnmower. He recognizes this little guy from his congregation. So he decides, I'm going to stop and just kind of bless the little fella, you know, as I'm biking by. And he asks him what he's doing with the lawnmower. He says, well, preacher, I'm, I'm mowing lawns so that I can buy myself a new bike. And then all of a sudden, the preacher just kind of has this impulse. He thinks to himself, I can really bless this little guy if uh, maybe I just trade my bike for his lawnmower. And, uh, you know, it'll be kind of something he'll always remember. And, and hopefully, you know, I can bless him this way. And, and he tells the little guy, well, listen, it just so happens that I need a new lawnmower. So why don't we trade? I'll give you my bike and I'll take your lawnmower. So the little guy says, okay, preacher, you got yourself a deal. He takes it for a test ride and comes back and says, I like the bike. You can take the lawnmower and I'm, it's a deal. They shake on it. And then the preacher decides, I'm going to crank it and, you know, just kind of see how the lawnmower works. And he cranks it and doesn't work and doesn't work. And he's cranking it and cranking it and cranking it and can't get it to start, cranks it some more. And now he's sweaty and he's out of breath. He looks at the little guy and says, son, I can't get this lawnmower to start. Little guy looks up at him and says, well, preacher, it's because you got a cuss at it. <laughs> the preacher looks at him and says, well, son, I can't cuss. I'm a pastor. In fact, I've been a Christian for so long, I've forgotten how to cuss. Little guy looks up at him and says, keep yanking that rope. It'll come back to you. <laughs> that hits pretty close to home for some of us, doesn't it? Come on, be honest. You've had a day like that. The lawnmower won't start kind of day. So you're just kind of right there. You're not going to cuss because you're a Christian, but you really wish you could. Yes. Hey, we all go through times like that, don't we? You just have one of those weeks. The lawnmower won't start kind of week. The car won't start kind of week. What do you do in those moments of your life? The lawnmower won't start. Here's the reality. I heard somebody say, and it's true. If you've got a problem money can solve, you don't have a problem. Now, what do you do when you've got a problem money can't solve? See, for some of us here, we've got a problem and money can't solve it. For some of us here, we're, we're going through a time of real tribulation, real loss, real pain. Uh, what do you do in those times? How you respond will define your destination by your decisions. And this is what James is going to talk to us about today as we come to the end of this letter. We're going to be done with the letter of James next week in our verse-by-verse -verse study. But he's led us to this destiny. I told you from those opening moments in those opening sermons how the destiny he wants to take us to is that we will come to a greater place of maturity spiritually. And your maturity spiritually is really defined when you're going through that trial, that tribulation, or that place of suffering. How do you respond? Bond in those times. And what we're going to learn is that you can learn to live abundantly even in times of adversity. And that is what Jesus taught. Jesus taught that we can live abundantly even in times of adversity. Remember what Jesus said in John 10 and verse 10, I've come to give you life and you can have it more abundantly. Now, a lot of us think, well, I can't live abundantly if I'm not going through times that are happy. But the reality is that's not what Jesus was teaching. What Jesus was teaching is that the foundation for our joy joy is in him, not what happens to me personally. And so consequently, I can live abundantly even when I'm facing great adversity. And here's the promise that he made. Remember what he said in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. You see, we need to remember what Jesus said, because a lot of times we forget. 
what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will have tribulation. And what does that mean exactly? Listen, we need to be reminded of what God has really promised. Because sometimes, honestly, our sometimes dissatisfaction with God is because we have a faulty expectation of God. I've said, honestly, we don't believe in this prosperity theology that you hear about sometimes in modern Christianity, that if you come to Jesus, you'll be rich, thin, healthy, and wealthy, and all your problems will be better, and it'll all be over. That's not what Jesus at all promised. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Uh, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised when you go through times of trial and tribulation because we live in a world that is cursed by sin. It is broken because of sin. Do you realize all human suffering is because of human sin? And I say that because a lot of times you hear people make this accusation against God. Oh, you Christians. Okay, let, let, answer this for me. If God is so good, why is the world so bad? Hmm. Uh, if God is so loving, why is the world so full of suffering? Hmm. Now, why is it? If God is so loving, why is the world so full of suffering? Did God do it? God didn't do it. No, understand, God created a world in perfection, but it was the sin of men that took God's perfection and made it a world of chaos and confusion. Romans 5, verse 12, For as by one man's sin, that's Adam, death entered the world, so death passed on all men, for all have sinned. You see, all human suffering is because of human sin. Either Adam's sin, it's what theologians call original sin, or your sin, and now you're going with the consequences consequences of sin or somebody else's sin and you're living with the consequences of their sin but all human suffering is because of human sin that's why Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation because Romans 8 says all of creation groans and travails under the curse of sin the promise is not that we won't have tribulation the promise is that we will go through trials and tribulation but what Jesus promised is that even when you suffer, you can be an overcomer. Here's what he said. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. What does that mean? It means if you're in Christ as a Christian, even when you suffer, you can learn to be an overcomer. Because Christ suffered, but Christ overcame. That means Romans 8.37, and all these things, the trials, the tribulations, were more than conquerors through him who loved us. You don't have to be conquered. You can be the conqueror. That means you can face great adversity and still learn to learn to live abundantly and that is what James wants to teach us to do today and so as you go through a trial or tribulation listen I want you to know you're not alone sometimes we think I'm the only one going through this and Satan wants to isolate you make you feel like nobody else knows what I'm going through I'm telling you right now guys there's a lot of pain in this place today there is well, there's a lot of sorrow, a lot of suffering in this place today. Even in my own life, I'm just telling you, I'm not saying this in any way to solicit sympathy from you. I'm the most blessed man that I know. I really am. But, you know, my, my, my standard answer on Sunday morning used to be, Pastor Phil, how you doing? I'd say, great. Well, the truth is I realized, you know, we want to be authentic and transparent here. We don't want to be fake or phony. Sometimes I'm not really doing great. You know, that's kind of a little bit of a misleading statement but you know what I'm always doing listen I am always blessed what I say now you know what I'm blessed how you doing pastor Phil I'm blessed because sometimes I'm not doing great this has been a year honestly for me personally of tribulation this is kind of one of one of those years and maybe some of you kind of had this kind of a year where you know I've had better years and I've had worse years and this year honestly has been the best of both worlds sometimes the thrill of victory the agony of defeat all in the same week it's just kind of where I've been recently.
Uh, a lot of you, you know, the thrill of victory, agony of defeat. So, you know, when I was a little guy, th- we didn't have ESPN with 24-7 sports. Um, yeah, those were the days. We're going back to the olden days. I'm dating myself here. This was the day before cable and 140 channels. So you got four channels and uh, only three on a cloudy day. And we didn't have ESPN with 24-7 sports. So as a little boy, my favorite show, I looked forward to it every Saturday, ABC's Wide World of Sports. Anybody remember this? Yeah. And that iconic image of the guy skiing down the slope in the thrill of victory, and he goes flying, he's soaring all of a sudden, and the agony of defeat, he crashes and burns and rolls. And sometimes life is like that, isn't it? I mean, it's the thrill of victory, and you're soaring, and the next thing you know, you're falling, and it's the agony of defeat, and sometimes all in the same week. How are you going to respond? This, see, Jesus said you can have life and have it more abundantly. And that includes even in times of great adversity. And that becomes the mark then of spiritual maturity. How do you respond under great trial and strain and duress and stress? And this is what James is talking about today. He says in James 5 and verse 7, picking it up where we left off last week. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, remember who he's talking to. The first readers, the first recipient of this letter was those early followers of Jesus. It's the first century in Roman society. And he addresses James 1 and verse 1. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Now, why were those early Jewish followers of Jesus scattered abroad? Well, what we know in the early days is that there was persecution in Jerusalem. And the Jews began persecuting those early Christians. And because of that persecution, I mean, people were dying for no other reason except they followed Jesus. They began to scatter out then among the Roman world. And now he's writing to those Christians that had been scattered because of this persecution. They were going through intense affliction, intense tribulation. He's trying to encourage them now in the faith to keep going, to not give up. Understand, these early Christians, it didn't matter where they turned, nobody liked them, nobody wanted them. Everybody would persecute them, imprison them, beat them, even kill them. The Romans hated them for their own reasons. The Jews hated them for their own reasons. And so now he's encouraging these early Christians going through this intense affliction, intense tribulation. He says, therefore, in the middle of this great persecution and affliction, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. I want you to see, he wants to remind you and me of the long view. You see, our hope is in this, that one day, Jesus Christ is coming again. Take hope, take heart, all is not lost. These broken pieces of the world will all be put back together again. Jesus Christ is coming back. And he encourages these early followers of Jesus with that absolute fact. Jesus Christ is coming. You know what that means? Here's what he's teaching. He's saying in those times of affliction and trial and tears of great sorrow and suffering, don't focus on the short view of only what you can see. Focus on the long view of what will be. You see, James reminds us that Jesus Christ will one day return. In the end, we win. We need to be reminded. Turn to somebody right now and say, in the end, you're going to win. You're going to win in the end. Yeah. We need to be reminded of that because right now it doesn't look like sometimes there's no way I'm going to win. I mean, I'm in a situation. There is absolutely no way I'm going to win. I mean, all is lost. It's a hopeless situation. Doesn't look like there's any way I can win. We need to be reminded sometimes in the end we win. And it feels like right now you can't win. It's because it's not the end. 
You see, one day it's going to be okay. In the end, everything will be okay. And if it's not okay today, it's because it's not the end. Jesus Christ is coming again. On the night before he was crucified, on the night before he went to the cross, he knew his followers, his friends, were in a state of loss. Some of us here are in a state of loss. They could not fathom or imagine how the Messiah could die, how the Messiah could be crucified. Even though the prophets said it would happen, even though Jesus promised it would, they could not fathom how he possibly could. He's told them, I'm going to the cross, and they're going through a great time of sorrow and loss. Some of us here have gone through great sorrow and loss. Loss of your health. You had the debilitating diagnosis this year you never thought you would. Loss of your wealth. You never dreamed after 20 years that company would tell you you're no longer needed. Loss of a marriage. You never dreamed at 47 years of age you'd be single again. You can't fathom. And Jesus looked at his followers going through the exact same thing, a time of loss, a time of great sorrow, a, a time of sadness, where life doesn't look like you thought that it would, and all of a sudden they realize it doesn't look like we thought it would when the Messiah came. It, it, it's not looking like we thought it should, and it's not ending like we thought it should. And for some of us, life doesn't look anything like we thought that it would. And here's what Jesus said to them, and it's what he says to you today. He says, let not your heart be troubled in these times of sorrow and loss. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself to where I am. There you may be also. He said, I'm coming back. And when Jesus comes back, understand, all the broken pieces of this world will be put together again. Paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. You see, God's promise of a kingdom that would be without end, what sin has delayed, sin has not denied. God's going to have a kingdom. There's coming a day where sin will not win. Righteousness will no longer retreat. And Jesus is going to win the day. And that's why James is reminding us of the end. Because he wants to have the long view, the long view of life, not the short view of life. We need to remember that, that there's coming a day. First Thessalonians chapter 4 says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be forevermore with the Lord. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. He says, find comfort in these words that one day Jesus Christ is coming back Back. And he's going to put back together the broken pieces of our world and all that's been lost because of sin. You say, Phil, how can you be so certain after 2,000 years that Jesus Christ is really coming back? I mean, seriously. Let me tell you why I can be so certain that one day Jesus Christ will return. We've been studying the book of Revelation for a year and a half now, coming up to the end. We call it the well, 430, over at the core. You can catch it online if you can't be there in person. Verse by verse of Revelation, guess what we've learned? What we've learned is that every biblical prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before Jesus Christ returns has been fulfilled sometime in the last century. Prophecies that lay dormant for 2,000 years have been fulfilled in our lifetime. God is positioning the props and the players and the prophecies perfectly for the greatest climax of the ages, the second coming of Christ. We are living right on the threshold. He's coming. 
You say, Phil, you seem so certain. How can you be so certain? I'll tell you why. Because prophecy after prophecy was made about the Messiah's first coming. We can prove literally, historically, that this one man in history, Jesus of Nazareth, he absolutely fulfilled all of these prophecies related to the first coming of Christ. Now, if I can prove, and I can, I could if I had time. I don't have time. If you don't believe me, email me this week. I'm telling you, I can prove how these prophecies that are all lined up, prophesying the first coming, they were all fulfilled perfectly by this one man in history. Now, if we can prove that, that's fact, that didn't even take faith, it really happened in history. I like my odds of the second one's coming true too, related to the second coming of Christ. Like if God did it then, I think I can trust him to do it again, yes? Say, I like my odds, I really do. Jesus Christ is coming back. And we need to remember that in the end, righteousness wins. And the reason why sometimes righteousness doesn't win and bad things happen to good people is because it's not yet the end. We live in a world of tears and trials and tribulation. Victory in times of adversity begins with focusing on the eternal and not merely the temporal. And this is what James taught. This is what Jesus taught. This is what the Apostle Paul taught. Look at what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Our light affliction is but for a moment, meaning whatever you're going through, no matter how hard, it's but a moment, a blip in time compared to the scope of eternity. You think it will never be over. That will last forever. It won't. Take heart. This light affliction is but for a moment. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at things that are seen, but things that are not seen. For things that are seen are temporary, but things that are not seen are eternal. You see what Paul's teaching. Listen, in times of trial, your focus will define your future. If you focus on that which you see, it's going to look like an impossibility. It's going to look like it's going to last forever. It's going to look like death, destruction, and ruin. He says, don't Focus on what you can see. That is not your final destiny. Focus on what you cannot see because eternity is the ultimate reality. Death doesn't win in the end. Cancer will be conquered. And all those people that have hurt you, let me try and encourage this with you, all right? Romans chapter 12. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. For vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Remember, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Don't pray, God take vengeance on them today. That's not what Jesus meant. <laughs> what he's saying, though, is listen, you don't keep score, I keep score. I'm keeping score. I'm going to right all the wrongs. So we think we live in a world full of wrongs that will never be righted. No, God says, uh, uh, no, 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 no. You pray for your enemies, pray for their repentance. All right, but, but understand, in the end, I'm a just God. I will bring justice. I will make all the wrongs right again. See, God's got this. This is what Paul's saying. This is what James is teaching. Leave it, God's got this. We don't got this, God got this. Have the long view. Now listen carefully, he gives us three examples of what to do in the hard times. What to do in the difficult times. What to do during times of sorrow and loss and pain. 
He says, first of all, look to the example of the farmer, okay? The first example is the farmer. It says in verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Now, we don't have a lot of farm boys and farm girls in our audience today, I realize. Most of us, honestly, uh, we can go to Sprouts or Hy-Vee or Price Chopper, pick up our groceries. We don't have to plant anything, grow anything. It's just right there, right? Well, I get that. But understand, this is a pretty simple concept. It really is. Everybody knows the farmer puts the spring seed in the ground and he doesn't get an immediate harvest. It's months in the making. So I'm not like a real farmer, but I do live on a farm, and this actually is my bean field. All right, 30-acre bean field, and I got a farmer in the area. He has a big field. He farms his, and then he comes over and does mine. And so, you know, for the first time, I'm kind of dialed into this farming thing a little bit. Uh, this is like vacation money for me, just kind of, you know, a little bit of Christmas money here. So I kind of pay attention to how we're doing, how the beans doing. You can see they're about ready to harvest. Now, they're about ready to harvest, but understand, my farmer put that seed in the ground in the spring. It's months and months in the making. Now, do you see what James is saying? Listen, wait patiently like the farmer. You want the harvest time today. He says, no, the law of the harvest is that you don't get the harvest today. You sow the seed today. And then there's waiting for months and months in between in this hard time of this time of work and sowing and planting. It precedes this time of reaping and harvesting. Now, here's the deal. God is promising if you endure the hard times, there's going to be a harvest time. But there could be months or years in between. That's why he says, be patient, look to the farmer, look to the farmer, how patient he is to get to the harvest time, because he was waiting all along, working while he was waiting, not expecting the harvest immediately just because he put in the sea in the ground. Where's my harvest? He wants it the next day. Here's why this is so hard. We're impatient by nature, aren't we? I'm not a patient person. I want to see immediate results. Like if I don't see immediate results, it's like my first impulse, God is not there, God doesn't care. Now, wait a minute. God's there. God cares. He said there's going to be a harvest time. Be patient. The harvest is in the making. Endure the hard time. You get to the harvest time. But we're not made this way, especially as Americans. Once again, this, this place of prosperity and technology of Western society. This is difficult for us, honestly, because we're getting better than ever and not having to wait on anything. Do you realize that? I've already told you there was a day I watched wide world of sports because there was no ESPN. I'm really dating myself now because some of you can't even fathom. You cannot imagine what it was like growing up in the 70s and 80s, <laughs> the olden days, when if you wanted to change the channel on your television, you had to get out of your chair. I mean, those were difficult days. I mean, you had to get up, walk clear across the living room, and change the channel like this. Yeah. These things didn't exist. These remote controls, oh, no, no, no. That was still years away. I mean, we can do everything is at our fingertips now, isn't it? We don't have to wait for anything. I, I admit, I don't like waiting for anything. Uh, they invented something called a window where you can order your food and not even go into the restaurant. I don't like waiting for my fast food to get up to the window. You know what I'm saying? I don't. 
They made it so easy, you don't even have to go through the door. You can get it through the window. Not only that, they made it so easy. I mean, instantly, you don't even have to tell them what you want to eat. All you got to do is say, one, <laughs> two, I'll take a three. Yeah, extra size it. Yeah, give me the biggie. It's, it's, it, we don't have to wait for anything. That's just how we are. That's how we're built. Somebody told me recently, I didn't realize this, just this morning after I preached second service, somebody showed me the McDonald's app. Not only do you not have to go to the restaurant, you don't even have to go to the window now. You can order ahead of time and they'll bring it out to you. See, this is what we're used to now, instant access. You don't have to leave your home. You can shop online. Boy, that's killing retailers. They don't know what to do about it. I admit, I'm an impatient person. I don't like waiting for anything. When I'm pulling up to an intersection and the, the light is red and there's two cars in front of me, one here, one here, I admit that I quickly size up which car is the faster make and model. <laughs> this guy's going to get off the line faster. I'm laying my odds. And if he doesn't get off the line fast, I'm ticked. I'm just admitting it. Now, I'm not alone. I know you. some of you do that too, yes? Okay, thank you. We're all impatient. We don't like waiting for anything, and that's why this is so hard. You know, part of our spiritual maturity, what God wants to do in our life, is not just get us to the destiny, it's taking us through the journey, okay? And sometimes that journey can't go fast enough because we're focused on the destiny. We want the harvest time, but we don't really want to have to pass through this hard time. And God is trying to teach us with the example of this farmer that if you endure the hard time, you eventually get to the harvest time. But you don't get to the harvest time until you endure through the hard time. And some of us, honestly, we quit too quickly. We get impatient too fast. We think if God hadn't made his move in the next 10 minutes, that God doesn't care or God isn't there. And that's never how God works. It never is how God works. He wants us to learn, you see, the law of the harvest, that you don't get to the harvest without going through something hard. Romans 8.18 says, The suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Do you realize what he's teaching? There is going to be a payday someday you will reap what you sow and in the hard times as you have have you you've sowed the seeds of obedience you're going to reap the blessing and the harvest for eternity that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory of the harvest time and not simply in the here and now, I'm talking where it really matters for eternity, the glory that you're going to be able to give God. Galatians 6 and verse 9. He says this, it says, don't faint, don't wear out, don't lose heart, for we know that in due season we shall reap if we faint not. What if the farmer gave up on the harvest halfway through? Well, it's never going to happen. He abandons it, he walks away. See, a lot of us don't get to see the harvest time because we give up too soon in the hard times. God is forming in you a strong foundation as you endure the tribulation. Watch this. God knows there is no way for you to have a strong faith that doesn't burn up and blow out, fade away and decay. He knows. The only way to form in you a strong foundation is taking you through some tribulation. Here's what James says. It says in verse 8, you also be patient. That word patient here in the Greek, it implies that of having a long fuse. In other words, it's not a fast-burning fuse. 
I've known people through 19 years of ministry, quite frankly, I've watched a lot of people come and go. You know why? They tried Jesus. They thought they could get a Jesus fix, a quick quick fix to their life. So they got on fire for Jesus, but it didn't last long. You can start a fire with kerosene or dousing some wood in lighter fluid. And guess what? You can start a fire and it's going to burn hard and it's going to burn fast and then it's going to burn out. And for a lot of people, that's the kind of faith they have. They got all hot for Jesus. It didn't last. He says, I want you to be patient. A slow burn, a slow burning fuse. You want to start a bonfire that's going to burn all night. You got to start it slowly. You got to start it carefully. You start it slowly in a way that it burns hotter and then it starts burning faster. And now it's going to burn longer. That's what God wants to do in your life. Now, then he says this, establish your hearts. This word establish, interesting word in the Greek. This is the word sterizo, from which we get the word steroid. What's he saying? He, he wants your faith to be strong. Establish your heart. Steroid in your heart, meaning your heart now is strong. You've got a strong heart for God. You've got a strong faith in God. I understand this very well. When I went to Kansas to play football years and years ago, the late 80s, steroids was rampant in the program. It was rampant on the football team. And the reason it was is because it's a very competitive environment. Everybody there is good. Everybody wants to get on the field. Everybody's looking for an edge. So everybody's doing steroids. Now, I'm happy to report that that is the one sin I didn't actually commit <laughs> at this time of my life because I pretty much committed all the others, okay? So God saved me from this one because I was going to. Everybody else was. I was going to also. Um, one of our teammates was making a run to Kansas City, pick up some Diana Ball, and I was going to start a steroid cycle the next week with everybody else, but I didn't have any money. So I couldn't pay for it. I was on a full-ride scholarship, but my mom and dad sent me a check about once a month just for some spending money, and I knew that check was going to be coming the next week. And so I told him, well, when you go back next week, I'll go ahead and get some. And in that next week, a scandal broke at Vanderbilt University, I'll never forget. A steroid scandal broke where everybody's now getting fired and the university's getting sued and the strength coach lost his job. And so when that happened, our strength coach got us all together in the weight room. And I'll never forget the speech he gave. Gentlemen, we're going to do it right at the University of Kansas. We are not going to take steroids. We're going to get strong, but we're going to get strong in the right way because steroids is a shortcut. It won't last. Now here's the deal. Steroids is a shortcut. If you want to get strong, check this out. You will get stronger faster, but you won't get stronger longer. You might get stronger on the short term, but you won't be healthy. Here's what Jesus wants to do in your life is not to take you through a shortcut so you have this fast faith that blows up and burns out. He wants to take you through the tribulation. And I want you to see that weights are in the weight room what trials and tribulation are to the Christian. Every single time you go into that weight room and you start working out, you are exercising your body physically to the point of exhaustion. And 
as you wear your body out to a place of weakness, you're actually making it stronger. In the moment, you feel weaker, but you leave that place a little bit stronger. And I want you to see that is what God is doing in your life, in my life, through trials and tribulation. He's making you exercise your faith against the external circumstances of that trial or that tribulation. There is no shortcut. There's no steroid. There's no pill you're going to take to suddenly make you a victorious Christian. There's no other way except enduring the hard time, the workout. And as in you endure that hard time, he's promising you're going to get to the harvest time. So the question is, what are you going to do in the hard time? See, there's seasons in life. This illustration James uses of the farmer. Farmers know there are seasons. There's a season of planting and sowing the seed. Then there's seasons of waiting and working. And then there's seasons of reaping and harvesting. And so the question is this, if you're in that hard time and you're not in the harvest time, what are you going to be doing? Because see, the farmer hadn't taken a day off in between. There's still work to be done. There's work while he waits. Isaiah 40, 31, the first verse I ever preached out of in my life. When I'm just a cop, I have no idea I'll ever be actually a real preacher. I'm just filling in one day, and I preach out of Isaiah 40 and verse 31. I'm going to re-preach this message someday. 19 years later, hopefully it's a little better. This is this, Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. People quote that verse and they think, well, waiting on the Lord. I'm just waiting on God to make his move. I'm just going to keep waiting. No, 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 no. Here's the reality. Waiting does not imply doing nothing. It always implies doing something. Okay? Because I'm telling you, a lot of people are waiting on God. And the whole time they're waiting on God, God's waiting on them. So the question is this. What are you doing during this time of waiting to prepare for the harvesting? Because the farmer is always working. There's always seasons. Uh, if you want to someday reap a harvest of friendship, and a lot of us honestly are more isolated than we've ever been in this age of social media, when everybody has 2,947 Facebook friends, we have fewer real friends than we ever have. In the age that was supposed to connect us, we are more disconnected. This is social science talking, not even Pastor Phil. This is what social scientists are saying. You know why? Because everything has been hijacked by a phone. Everything's been hijacked by one of these. We don't even know how to have community. We don't even know how to talk to each other. Hey, you go to a restaurant, four people sitting around a table. You go to a restaurant, not for the food, for the fellowship. What's everybody doing? You want to have a harvest of friendship and fellowship in your life. You've got to start sowing the seeds of community. It's not going to happen accidentally. October is Group Connect at our church. If you want to be in a group, we will help you connect. We'll help you find friendship, fellowship, family in Christ's body. But I can't do it for you. You've got to sow the seeds of community. You want to have a harvest of financial stability. Listen, I don't believe the Bible ever promises that you're going to be wealthy, but I am convinced God wants you to be financially healthy. He wants you to have a sense of financial stability. Let me ask you, you want to harvest financially of financial health and financial ability. You've got to start sowing some seeds of generosity. Instead of hanging on to the seed you have, you've got to start sowing it and giving it away. See, that's the law of the harvest in all of our lives. 
You want to have a harvest in your marriage, a harvest finally of joy, of intimacy, the marriage you always wanted. What seeds are you sowing? See, there's a universal law of the harvest. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you're sowing the seeds of sin, you're going to reap a harvest of the consequences of sin. But if you're sowing the seeds of obedience to him, you're one day going to reap a harvest, a blessing from him. That's the law of the harvest. Listen very carefully. Only after something has died can that harvest be multiplied. In the ancient days, seed was very valuable, very precious to a family. Seed was life. These were the days before you could just drive down to Hy-Vee and pick up some groceries. If you didn't grow it, you didn't get it. You didn't eat it. You starved. They would have only so much seed. Seed was precious. It was valuable. Seed meant bread. It was meant to eat. Now imagine a farmer. He's faced with a decision. If he hangs on to the seed, he will eventually use it, eat it, and lose it. Now there's no seed in the spring. What does he have to do? He has to give up that seed that he wants to hang on to and begin sowing that seed, risking it to ever get it back and gain it. See, only once that seed has died can that seed then be multiplied. And that's what Jesus was teaching in John 12, 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. From that one seed, that seed is multiplied hundreds, even thousands of times. Now, what do we want to do in times of tribulation and trial? We want to hang on to what we have. We want to protect what we have. We, we don't want to give up what we have. We want to hang on to what we have. And what Jesus Jesus is teaching is that you need to do what absolutely doesn't come naturally to you instead of trying to hang on to it you need to let go of it and that's what God is trying to do through trials and tribulations he's trying to get you to let go and just as Jesus had to let go of his life he was saying my life is like a seed if I hang on to it it will abide alone but if I let go of it it will be multiplied over and over and over again you and I are part of that multiplied life for the Lord Jesus Christ because he let it go and he laid it down in times of trial and tribulation what Jesus is teaching is that what was true of him is true now of me and you when you let go of your seed instead of hanging on to it it's precious yes it is but if you let go of it only then does he multiply it back to you and all of a sudden you're living a fruitful life instead of a barren life this is God's will for your life John 15 I have ordained that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain in this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit Jesus wants you to live a fruitful life but you can't live a fruitful life until you've learned to live a faithful life and some of us haven't been faithful therefore our life really isn't fruitful be faithful of what you have. Be faithful of that seed. Your life, let it go. He's going to multiply it. That's the law of the harvest. Then he gives us the example of the prophets. 
All right, he gives us a second example. He says in verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. He knows the trials and tribulations makes us blame each other. We start playing the blame game. Your marriage is going through a trial. You start grumbling through each other. Uh, churches go through trials. We start turning on each other. You see, Satan knows that if he can get us to turn on each other and fight each other, then we'll never turn on him together and fight him together. And that was apparently going on in the early church. He says, resist the need to start blaming and pointing fingers during trials and tribulation. Let it make you stronger, not separate you altogether. He says these words, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Now these early Jewish followers would have known immediately who he was talking about. He's talking about Isaiah, one of the great Hebrew prophets of old, who prophesied that one day the Messiah was coming. Guess what he got for being in the will of God and living for God? He got sodden too. They knew about Jeremiah, who prophesied the will of God, who prophesied the word of God, prophesied one day the Jews would return from Babylon, never lived to see it. He got put in stocks. He got put in prison. He was made a mockery of Jerusalem and Jewish society. They knew about Daniel, who was carried off into Babylon as a prisoner who was made a eunuch against his will. They knew about Ezekiel, that prophesied the word of God as a captive. They knew about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that got thrown into a fiery furnace. You know what he's saying? You think you got hard times? Go tell that to the prophets. Who the only thing they got for being in the will of God was dead. He says, look at their example of patience. They never quit. They never gave up. They never gave in. For some of us here, we're in a watershed moment of our life. We are tempted to quit. Quit on God. Because God wasn't there. Maybe God doesn't really care. Tempted to quit on each other. Quit on my marriage. Quit my job. So I'll never forget, mentioned being at Kansas years ago playing football, didn't look anything like I thought it would. Didn't look anything like I thought it should. People ask, why'd you go to Kansas to play football? I didn't go to Kansas to play football. I went to Kansas to play for a coach. That's how it works. Next thing I know, my coach got fired after one year. This guy came in, Glenn Mason. He was our next coach. I didn't like him. I didn't go there to play for him. And I was convinced he came there to ruin my life. I'll never forget the first team meeting he had. He, 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 he called the team together. He said, gentlemen, we're going to find out beginning today who the quitters are and who the winners are. And then he immediately launched what I thought was a concentration camp. I mean, it was torture. I mean, he would run us every day, and he'd run us over and over again. He would run us in such a way that we thought we were going to die. He'd run us till we wished we would die. I got religion in the middle of these gassers and hills. Like, God, just take my life, please. I mean, it was torture. It was horrible. But he knew what he was doing. He was turning a quitting, whining, losing culture into a winning culture, and he did. A lot of people forget. We used to win some games back in the 90s. We were pretty good for a while but a third of the team quit that first year it's exactly what he wanted to do he was trying to separate the winners from the quitters 
Not only did a third of the team quit, most of them were my circle of friends. I mean, my immediate circle. What we call today my community. Listen carefully. Be, sh be careful who you're in community with. When you surround yourself with quitters, it's going to be easy to become one. My roommate quit the team. My, my circle of friends quit the team. Not only did they quit, they did it in the most cowardly of ways. They left in the middle of the night without telling anybody. All of a sudden, it doesn't look anything like I thought it would. And I'm not having fun anymore. And some of us, honestly, are in that place of life. It doesn't look anything like you thought it would at this stage of life, this season you're in. You're in a season of winter where it feels like everything is dormant, everything is dead, there's no life anymore, my dreams have died. You're in the summertime of your life, it's no longer the springtime. For some of us here, you're in the springtime, everything is blooming and it's blossoming, and all of a sudden summer hits, and it's the brutal heat and famine. And you wish it were springtime, you wish it was harvest time, but it's not. I wanted to quit, I called my dad. I made the mistake of calling my dad. I thought I was going to get a little sympathy. Understand, this is the man that to this day I've never heard him complain about anything. He's been through some really hard times recently. This is the man that for 41 and a half years got up out of bed at 5.45 a.m. driving from South Kansas City to Fairfax, Kansas to get on a loading dock to load insulation onto 18 wheelers for 41 and a half years driving a forklift for 41 and a half years. I wasn't gonna get a lot of sympathy from him. Like, son, you're playing football. Not only are you playing football, you're getting paid to play football. Like, you're going to school for free. He more or less made it clear, I wasn't coming home. I wanted to come home. I can't remember exactly what he said, but basically it was put your big boy pants on. I don't know how to say this, sweet friends. I really, I'm not trying to hurt you, I'm trying to help you, but some of us, we need to put our big boy pants on, spiritually speaking. Nobody has sawed you in two like Isaiah for living for your faith. That's what James is saying. I went to the team meeting that day, a third of the team has quit, they didn't tell anybody. Coach Mason stands up, looks at the team, realizes there's a lot of people that weren't there, says, if anybody knows what happened to these other players, I want you to stand up right now and tell us all. I stood up. I said, Coach, they've all quit the team. They left in the night. And then I'll never forget what he said. It was a defining moment for my life. He looked at the whole team. He said these words, if you quit now, you're going to be a quitter for the rest of your life. What he was saying is quitting becomes easier every time you quit. Quitting can become a habit. He was saying if you quit now, it's going to be a pattern for the rest of your life. And that was the moment in my heart that God established my heart, uh, sterizo in my heart. Like I'm not going to quit no matter how bad it gets. Not only did I not quit football, but I made the decision I will never quit anything for the rest of my life. And for some of us, honestly, you're thinking about quitting your marriage. You quit now, you're going to be a quitter the rest of your life. How much easier will it be able to quit the next time you get married? Some of us, you want to quit, you want to quit your job. You know, you're not getting paid enough. I know, nobody is. 
But you don't get the big payday until you endure the hard times and keep the job you have today. See, that's how it works. You don't get to the harvest time until you go through the hard times. Quitting becomes easier. Some of us are quitting too soon. You're quitting in the hard time, and because of that, you don't get to the harvest time. You're in a season, but it's not going to last forever. You see, these prophets knew that God would perform whatever He's promised. And I'm going to tell you today, whatever God has promised, He will absolutely perform. God has made promises to you. And what you need to learn is what those prophets knew, that promises delayed are not promises denied. Isaiah never lived to see the coming of the Messiah. Jeremiah never lived to see the return of the Jewish captives from Babylon. Daniel never lived to see God establish that eternal kingdom, but they knew that promises delayed are not promises denied. God will keep every single promise to you. It may be weeks or months or years in the making, and for some of us, we won't see those promises this side of heaven, but the reward is not here. It really is there. It really is. That's where the real harvest comes in of your life. And he gives us the story of Job, one last example. Everybody's remembered Job. Everybody knows who Job is. Even if you don't know a lot about the Bible, you've heard of Job. Job lost his health. He lost his wealth. He lost his entire family, all till 10 children. And one day, tragically, all 10 children are gone. They've died. You think this man wasn't in pain and suffering? But you see, he becomes an example of patience under fire. James 5.11, he says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen and the intended of the Lord, the end that is intended, that God is compassionate and merciful. We read the story of Job. He gets it all back tenfold. You see, he went through the hard time to get to the harvest time. God multiplied it all back to him ten times. Now understand, Job didn't know any of that when he was going through it. Job teaches us that out of our greatest pain, we can give God our greatest praise. It's easy to give God praise. When I've just got the promotion, I just came back from that awesome family vacation. I mean, I've got this most amazing occupation. My marriage is great. It's easy then to give God glory. But your greatest opportunity to give God glory is in those moments of your deepest pain. That is when you can give him the greatest praise. I mean, here is Job who's lost everything. He's literally sitting in a pile of ash taking broken pottery, scraping boils and pus off of his body. And then when it can't get any worse, his wife comes out, looks at him sitting there and says, why don't you just curse God and die? How would you like to be married to her? And here's how Job responds. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I'm going to follow God no matter what. I'm going to worship him no matter what happens to me. He says these words, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And I'm trying to tell you today that no matter what happens to you, no matter how painful, your Redeemer lives. And He is more than enough. He really is sufficient for your every single need. And I'm not saying this in any capacity. I promise to solicit any sympathy. I'm just telling you, this year for me personally, it's been a time of loss. 
I mean, I've gone through one of those seasons. There are seasons in all of our life. There are seasons for every church in the life of a church of, of planting and sowing and then reaping and harvesting. And there's a time in between where you're waiting and working. And I'm just trying to tell you that God doesn't play favorites. If sometimes people look at Pastor Phil and go, well, you're so blessed. You must be one of God's favorites. No, 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 no. I mean, if you only knew. We all go through difficult times, and maybe you're in one of those seasons. Life is full of them. I want you to come right now to this altar. I'm going to jump down off this altar, and I just want to pray with you right now. That's all I want to do. Our prayer team's going to come. We just want to pray together. We want to commit this season to Jesus, knowing that promises delayed are not promises denied. There's going to be a harvest if you endure the hard times.